Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about talking, more specifically how teachers learn about teaching from the informal conversations that they have at school. To do this, I'm joined by Adam Lefstein, who was an author on a recent article in AERA's Education Research Journal, calling for more attention to be paid for what he calls pedagogically productive talk. So, if we accept the premise that informal teacher talk is actually a major form of professional development, then it clearly needs to be taken seriously. So I sat down with Adam to go through some of his main observations and arguments, starting with a quick definition of what kind of teacher talk constitutes what he describes in the article as teacher-on-the-job discourse. First of all, in the staff room, a teacher comes out of a lesson, teachers come out frustrated, annoyed, angry, uh, disappointed, and uh, come into the staff room and uh, and share their frustration with their colleagues. That's uh, that 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 happens all the time. Uh, or in the morning, when you're you've suddenly realized that you haven't prepared for a lesson and you need. Does anyone have a worksheet on this topic? Or there's all sorts of informal consultation, uh, sharing of ideas that goes on uh, throughout the, the the course of the the school day. And I'm not even talking about when a teacher might, uh, for instance, observe another teacher. So, I mean, people talking to each other in the workplace, I guess, always. But where does the learning take place? And what type of learning is actually kind of being, being taking place through this talk? Well, I, mean, that's, that's, I think that's, that is how the learning takes place, is through the talk. Uh, um, we're, we're constantly, as professionals, you're constantly trying to figure out how to do your job better. Uh, I think that there are very few teachers who are um, fully satisfied with what they're doing. They feel they've reached every single one of the 40 kids in their classroom. I mean, it's an impossible feat. So uh, uh, they're constantly thinking about how they can improve their practice. And, and one way to think about that is by talking to colleagues. And are there certain aspects of pedagogic practice that tend to get talked about more? Well, I, I think I gave the example before about frustrations. I think there's, there's a lot of... Uh, Sharing of frustrations, of disappointments, of problems, but uh, but but also uh, new ideas, uh, innovations. Um, we we sort of looked at themes that come up. We categorized. I, I probably can't remember all ten of them, uh, but there was a lot of talk goes on about administrative issues, logistical issues, curricular issues. What am I supposed to be doing around this issue, uh, this particular topic? Uh, a lot of talk about individual students. Um, who they are, where they're coming from, why are you also having issues with this this kid, um, and uh, questions about uh, about learning and about teaching. So what's come up from your research is, I mean, teachers are not just moaning about this. You talk about this idea of pedagogically productive teacher talk, and I think that's the really interesting aspect of it. I mean, can you talk us through this idea of pedagogically productive talk so, in more detail? So maybe before I talk about that, we should talk about moaning. Yeah, why not? Uh, because uh, because I think one of the, when we developed this idea of pedagogically productive talk, and I say we, it's a, a big team, but especially Donna Vetterweiss and Elisa Segal, which I, I want to acknowledge here, my my colleagues, um, we we had in mind all of the various um, 
uh, norms of talk that we've encountered in schools and encountered in the literature that we, we think are problematic. So one of them is moaning, uh, which is natural. And I mean, I, I moan as well about different things that frustrate me in my work. But then the question is, what do you do with it? it does the moaning, is the moaning turn into um, a call to action? Or is it something which uh, Alana Horn and, and others call normal, is normalized? So uh, I might moan about I'm having a hard time teaching fractions in uh, year three and because uh, kids just don't get it. And, um, and, and my colleagues would say to me, well, that's, yeah, they never get it. Don't worry about it. It's mm. not really a problem. It's normal. And that's not a call to action. That's a call to complacency. So pedagogically productive talk was... Uh, thinking about what, what does it sound like when teachers talk in ways that's productive, that's generative for their practice. Um, so the first thing is they're talking about problems. Uh, they're talking about things that, that concern them in their work and that they're, uh, they would like to, to get better at. That may seem obvious, but actually when you go into uh, various professional, formal professional development sites, you very often will find that we're not talking about our problems. We're talking about our solutions. Mm. Some, someone, someone, for instance, like me in, in the university has developed some sort of solution to problems that I uh, assume teachers share. And I come to the workshop and I present my solutions. Um, so, so this is a shift to talk about problems and start from the problems that concern teachers and think uh, together about solutions. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is that uh, multiple uh, perspectives are shared. Uh, multiple voices are heard. There's disagreement. Uh, disagreement is a, is a real uh, driver of, of argumentation, of, of reasoning, uh, reasoning about causes, trying to understand problems better, reasoning about possible solutions, their advantages, their disadvantages, uh, reasoning about evidence. How do I know what I know? And uh, uh, how could I get smarter about what I think I know? Uh, those are three out of six. I'm droning on a bit, but uh, but I'll get to the other three quickly. Uh, it involves representations of practice because uh, it's it, we talk about teaching very often in abstract ways, uh, but when but but teaching is incredibly complex with all sorts of things happening in the moment, and and uh, uh, one of the challenges for pedagogically productive talk is to to have the sort of representations that you can uh, dig your, your your teeth into. Um, Generative orientations toward learning, toward students, toward, uh, toward teaching, toward my own agency as a professional. So uh, a generative orientation toward students is, for instance, assuming that they have the capacity to learn uh, rather than um, thinking that some are, are a lost cause. That would be a, not a very generative orientation. Uh, the uh, final, I think, I've, have I gotten up to six? Uh, the, the final one is a, this is this can be really threatening this is a pedagogically productive talk where you have rich representation so you know your face is threatened because people can see what you're doing and you have argumentation and criticism and, and uh, reasoning um, and, and you're dealing with problems uh, so there needs to be a, an integration of, of support and, and with critique and needs to be sensitivity toward uh, how people are, uh, are are taking all this and uh, to present critique in ways that, that make people uh, feel good about about the critique they're getting. So a lot of what you've just said there kind of makes me think of an ideal school culture where every teacher feels that they have a voice, no one's vulnerable or marginalised, that you're supported. I mean, so is this does this take a particular kind of school environment, school culture? I mean, how can we kind of make this happen in places that perhaps aren't that 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a common culture, at least not in the schools that I've worked in. Um, uh, it's not common to have representations of practice, for mm. instance. Uh, that takes a lot of effort to, to create them. It's not common to have communal spaces, to have proper conversations. So I described before, you asked, where does it happen? And I said, well, in the teacher's room. But there's so much happening in the teacher's room, and you have 10, 15 minutes at most between classes to get a cup of coffee and to go over your next lesson plan. And, and these, are, these are kind of fleeting conversations. So, so there's a lot that needs to be done if you want to develop this sort of culture. One thing is uh, making space for it, space and time uh, within the workday. Uh, another thing is having having access to uh, these representational resources, uh, for instance, video recording lessons. But you could also take a picture of the board. You can bring in your assignment that you're going to give the students. You can bring in your, you know, uh, some examples of student work. There's lots of ways to represent practice that don't involve uh, uh, video. Um, so we talk about space, time, uh, representational resources, and developing norms. Uh, you need leadership. So uh, a lot of what we've been doing is working with teachers on how to facilitate these kind of conversations uh, and working with principals about how to uh, cultivate that teacher leadership. Actually, while we were just talking, I was thinking the flip side of pedagogically productive talk is pedagogically productive listening. It takes two to talk or at least two to talk. So, I mean, I guess that's another skill set that people have to kind of tune into. Yeah, maybe we should have called it pedagogically productive dialogue. Because yeah. it, it's, it's about the interaction. It's not about the individual talking. So, yeah, talking, if, if you're talking <laughs> but not listening, then it's not going to be very productive. But I guess as soon as you get kind of schools on board with this and school leaders hear this phrase and prick up their ears, it kind of denotes that there's pedagogically unproductive talk and that's a bad thing and we need to get rid of it. So you're not arguing that we need to kind of only have teachers talking in this pedagogically productive way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to, um, I wouldn't want to, uh, school leaders to be walking around with a checklist and, and saying this is productive, that's not productive. And, and But just between the two of us, I do think there is unproductive talk, and I think it's something that we need to be aware of. Uh, so when people are talking in ways that are, that are not generative toward uh, one another's practice, toward students, toward uh, content, I think... Uh, we need to be wary of that, and we need to think about how to deal with it. Um, yeah. Not necessarily by, you know, giving them marks uh, on the quality of their talk, but but uh, part of what we've been doing is raising sensitivity toward these issues. Now, as a researcher, how do you actually kind of authentically look at this? How do you authentically capture teacher talk? Well, I, I'm I'm an ethnographer by by training, and I I believe uh, that the best way to uh, understand a culture is by participating in it. So I can go spend time in schools um, uh, recording uh, teachers talking. Uh, when you say authentically, there's, I, I guess you're, you're asking, well, is, is my presence there affecting the talk? Um, and undoubtedly it is. Uh, undoubtedly it is. But, if, uh, but it's affecting it most in the first couple times you come to school. But if you're going to school every week uh, for for uh, a day or two a week and and you become part of that culture and and i am part of you know i'm participating in the talk i i'm doing a productive and unproductive things along with the teachers um uh, that i'm part of part of become part of that culture i don't think i don't see that as a problem i see that as a uh a, as a benefit um you know as, as something which gives you leverage for understanding and that's my purpose when i go into school Absolutely. No, that's a really interesting way of putting it. So, I mean, practically then, you know, it's an amazing framework. It's really rich research. What are the implications? I'm thinking, say, implications for initial teacher education, for example. 
Are there ways that we can kind of embed this in the way that we, we kind of prepare new teachers? Yeah, I, well, I think focusing on problems of practice and focusing on uh, how to, I mean, all of these features of pedagogically productive talk are also features of productive pedagogically productive interaction in any educational setting. Uh, so, so getting teachers to reason about their practice, uh, to analyze uh, rich representations of practice, to listen to multiple voices, to have, uh, to develop generative orientations, all that is good for initial teacher education. But I'd also add to that that developing the sort of professional identity and agency of someone who takes part in these sort of conversations is it would be incredibly worthwhile. Now, so if I were um, involved in initial teacher education, I would want to partner with schools in which this culture uh, had developed uh, and was was being uh, nurtured in order for the students to be exposed to this sort of culture. And I'm just also thinking in terms of um, my own research is more digitally focused. Teachers don't just talk to each other in the corridors and in the classrooms and in the, in the staff room. Increasingly, teachers are talking to each other online. Yeah. What thoughts or observations do you have about the online teacher discourse? I'm thinking like, you know, Edu Twitter, for example, or teachers on Instagram. Well, there, there's some uh, incredible uh, things going on, especially in, in math education in the United States. I don't know if you're familiar with the, I, I don't remember what it's, math, Twitter, uh, blogosphere, MTBOS, if you hashtag MTBOS, if you look it up, there, there's some, some really good people um, sharing their practice. There's a, uh, an educator, a math educator in New York named Michael Pershon, who has, uh, for instance, a, a blog of student mistakes. It's, it's an incredibly rich resource. We've actually translated some of his materials into Hebrew and used it in, in our own work. Um, so so there's, there's clearly a place for that. Um, on the other hand, there are, um, we have a, a website on Facebook that uh, we, is, I mean, Israeli education, there's a, 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 a Facebook page called um, Teachers Who Care, uh, translated into, into English, Teachers Who Care. There, I, th I think there, there, there must be something like uh, 40,000 Israeli teachers on that, which is, which is a big chunk of Israeli teachers. Uh, but it's almost all sharing um, worksheets and where... Mm. Uh, worksheets or wall presentations or, or, or other things where there's almost no pedagogical reasoning involved. Um, teachers share something they've done uh, and they get a lot of praise from the other teachers and it's, uh, um, it's kind of a look at me, uh, yeah. look how good I am and wow, you're great atmosphere going on, which, which I think has its place. Uh, I mean... Uh, I want teachers to feel good about their work and I want them to be praising one another and, uh, uh, and, and to take pride in what they're doing. But I don't think that's very generative for improving their practice. Absolutely. Well, thanks ever so much for taking the time, Adam. Well, thank you for having me. No, congratulations on the paper as well. Thank you very much.